I was doing a little bit of reading this past week on millennials. And millennials are an interesting group. They were born somewhere between 1980 and, and 2000. There's a lot of things you could say about millennials. There's a lot of characteristics about millennials that, that hold true, generally speaking. They're very tech savvy. They're very interested in, in technology. They, they know how to use it. And, and uh, sometimes it uses them, but they know how to use it. They're, they're, they're very, very up to date with, with technology. But the millennials that are beginning to get interested in the church are looking for particular kinds of churches. And the number one characteristic of churches that millennials are looking for are churches that preach and teach the Bible and explain Christian doctrine. You know, while we highlight and, um, and sometimes uh, uh, belittle the, the characteristics of millennials, that's a, that's a pretty substantial statement that the number one characteristic of millennials who are, who are trying to reconnect with the church are looking for churches that preach the Bible and take a doctrinal stance. And the passage that we've been looking at the last couple of weeks would be the kind of passage that millennials would really be drawn to because it teaches substantive truth. It, it teaches the gospel message it informs us of what the Bible says about us, who we really are in Christ Jesus. In fact, in the first 14 verses, Jesus is mentioned 15 times, either directly by name or by pronoun. And so you work your way through this passage and Paul keeps going back to Jesus over and over and over again. It was obvious that Paul was a man mesmerized by Jesus. He was a man deeply in love with Jesus. He was a man whose life was radically changed because of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and as he unfolds the gospel message in this passage, it's constantly taking him back to, to the person and work of Christ. But it's a Trinitarian passage, and we're Trinitarian Christians. We believe in God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And what we saw in verses 3 through 6, we've been chosen by God. Before, before time began, God chose us in Christ Jesus, chosen by the Father. In verses 7 through 12, we've been redeemed by the Son. Jesus Christ died on Golgotha's tree in order to redeem us so that we could be forgiven of sins and brought into the family of God. And in verses 13 and 14, we see the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the role of the Holy Spirit. The moment we were saved, we were indwelt by the Spirit of God and we were sealed by the Spirit of God. In fact, that's what we're going to talk about today. You are sealed by the Holy Spirit. But we don't talk about the Spirit much. We as Baptists are a little bit intimidated by the Spirit. We have allowed some excesses in evangelicalism, some, some, some fringe groups who overemphasize the ministry of the Spirit over against the person and work of Christ to, to cause us to be a little uncomfortable talking about the work of the Holy Spirit, the identity of the person of the Holy Spirit. But you can't read the Bible and you can't read the book of Ephesians in particular and not understand how essential the ministry of the Spirit is in the life of the believer. 
Let me read verses 13 and 14, lead us in a word of prayer. And then what I'd like to do is to take you on a very quick tour of the six chapters of this book and show you how often the Spirit of God is mentioned. In fact, he's mentioned in every single chapter. We won't spend much time on any single verse. We don't have time this morning and we'll be getting to all of these verses in due course. But sometimes it's good just to be reminded that we're Trinitarian Christians. Father, Son, and Spirit. Look with me beginning in chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. I'll pray and then take us on this quick tour. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who has given us a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we pray that your Holy Spirit would illuminate your word to us. That what we learn in our minds, your spirit would make real in our hearts for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Look with me in chapter 1 and verse 17. In chapter 1, verse 17, we're in a prayer of the Apostle Paul. And Paul prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Some translations there have the word spirit as a small s. It's very likely that we should have a capital S there and that it's a reference to the Holy Spirit. And it's the spirit of the living God that makes us capable of knowing who God genuinely and truly is. Turn with me to chapter 2. Look with me in verse, in verse 21 and 22. In whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. In whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the spirit. So we are the, the people of God, we're the temple of God. And we're all individual bricks or stones in that glorious temple. And the temple has been constructed and is being constructed in order to be the dwelling place of God. And what he's saying is when we gather together congregationally, and when other congregations in our city, Bible-believing, God-honoring congregations gather together, the Spirit of God manifests himself in a way that is peculiar and particular and powerful to the gathering together of God's people in a way that exceeds what we experience individually. When we're together, we're stones, we're living stones, we're being built up into a spiritual house, and God's Spirit is powerfully present among God's people. Look with me in chapter 3 and verse 16. In chapter 3 and verse 16. Another prayer by the Apostle Paul that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. He's praying that the spirit of the living God would empower the, Thess the Ephesian Christians and that the very heart of the gospel could be a reality to them through the power and the presence of the spirit. Look with me in chapter 4 and verse 3. 
being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Notice that the devil wants to disrupt unity. The devil wants to destroy unity. He says that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, the people of God, are to be diligent to preserve unity in the bond of peace, but we do the unity of the Spirit. Look with me in chapter 4 and verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Notice you can only grieve a person. The Holy Spirit is not an it. The Holy Spirit is a person. And the Spirit can be grieved by our behavior. He says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Look with me in chapter 5 and verse 18. He says, do not get drunk with wine. That is dissipation. But be filled with the Holy Spirit. Every believer is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But not every believer is filled with the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul commands the Ephesian Christians and by extension even us, keep on being spirit-filled. Look with me in chapter 6, verse 17 and 18. He says in verse 17, And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. So all of that to say the Spirit of God permeates the book of Ephesians. In every single chapter, we see a reference to the Holy Spirit. And so let's turn back to chapter 1. We've already seen, as I've mentioned several times, we've been chosen by the Father. We've been redeemed by the Son. And now we come to understand we have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. We go back to verse 13 and Paul begins saying, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed. You've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. But notice the process. Notice the order that Paul articulates here. He says, you have heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. So the gospel is the truth. The gospel is the means by which we can be made right with God. The gospel is the good news of God. The gospel says that we are sinners separated from God that we are sinners under the wrath of God and that we need to be saved by God and God has made salvation possible through the person and work of Christ and God has made salvation known through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he says in verse 13, after listening to the message of truth and most of us heard the gospel from someone, someone articulated it to us before we were actually saved. Very few people ever discover the gospel themselves simply by reading the Bible without someone articulating it to them, without someone explaining it to them, without someone having, having told them about it. Now, occasionally there, there are people 
that never have a gospel witness, never have a gospel conversation, never have a gospel prayer being prayed for them. And through their reading and studying, they come to faith in Jesus Christ. But most of us were possibly raised in a Christian family. And our parents catechized us. Uh, they would ask us questions associated with the gospel and we would memorize scriptures and answers related to those and we would, we would recount them. And often as a young child, you might not have even understood them, but gospel seeds were being planted. Your, your parents didn't expect you to understand it all right then, but they're, they're planting seeds in your heart that the spirit could then water and, and one day bring to fruition. Or, or maybe you had a faithful Sunday school teacher. Maybe as a child, every week that Sunday school teacher would pray for you during his devotions. And when you would come in, he would faithfully teach to you, teach you the Bible, even though your parents might not have been equipped or felt equipped to have home devotions or read the Bible at home or even pray as a family. You had a Sunday school teacher. And one day you said to that, to that lady or gentleman, I, I think I'd like to be a Christian and they sat down with you and walked you through the gospel that they'd been teaching you and praying for you and you put your faith in Jesus Christ. Or maybe you had a coworker. And maybe the coworker didn't pray with you, but the coworker shared with you. And you didn't have any idea, but at night at the dinner table, that coworker would say to his family, his wife, his children, you know, I work with a guy named Tim. Or the mom would say, I work with a lady named Susan. And Tim or Susan, they don't know Jesus like we know Jesus, kids. In fact, they don't go to church. They don't believe the Bible. They've never been saved. And so what I want us to do at the dinner table before we eat as a part of our prayer time, I want us to pray for Tim. I want us to pray for Susan. I want to pray that, that God would let me be a light to them and that there would be opportunities for me to plant gospel seeds. And there are going to be times maybe we'll invite them over to the house and, you know, they don't talk like we talk and, and they don't act like we act because they've never had the opportunity to be raised in a Christian home. So they may say things that are bad. They may speak bad words. But you know what? We're going to overlook that because we're going to try and love them. And little by little, they had no idea you're praying for them. You're, you're speaking good, tr good truth into their lives lives and over time they're being drawn ever closer by the convicting and drawing work of the Holy Spirit to salvation and after listening to the truth they believe the gospel that's what he says he says in verse 13 you you also after listening to the message of the truth the gospel of your salvation having also believed and so the moment they believe the moment you believe the moment that I believe we were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit. Now in the ancient world, uh, a seal had various, it, it, kinda, it brought it forth various ideas. The, the primary idea was that of ownership. I, I think of it like this, my dad loved John Wayne movies and in John Wayne movies there were always cattle rustlers. And whenever John Wayne would, uh, would go after the cattle rustlers, he would prove that the cattle that they had stolen was his because there was a brand on it. And, uh, and that brand was a brand of ownership. It was a mark of ownership. So the moment that you and I trusted in Jesus, he branded us, he sealed us, he marked us with a seal of ownership, indicating that we belong to him. It happened at the moment of salvation. And it indicates 
That because we belong to him, we will always belong to him. We can never not belong to him. We can never undo his ownership of us. Someone might try to take us from him. Nobody can take us from him. Hell might try to separate us from him. Hell can't keep us from him. We might try to separate ourselves. We are unable to separate ourselves because he has sealed us with the Holy Spirit of promise. He has indicated we belong to him. He purchased us for himself. We can't unsave ourselves just like we can't save ourselves. The seal of the Holy Spirit is an authentication. We belong to God. We can't see it physically, but it's real spiritually. The way that it works its way out Physically, it's in the life that we live. Our lifestyles demonstrate that we've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. Our lifestyles indicate the work of God in our, in our lives. Every believer is sealed with the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation. But notice the second image of the Spirit. He's the Spirit of promise. Look at the latter part of verse 13. With the Holy Spirit of promise. To say that he's the Holy Spirit of promise is to say that he's the promised one. On Thursday night of Passion Week, just hours before Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, just hours before he was crucified at Golgotha, he was with the disciples in the upper room. And there they celebrated what they thought was the Passover, but he was inaugurating the Lord's Supper. And he told the disciples in that upper room that it was better that he would leave them than he would remain with them, which blew their minds. How could it ever be possible that Jesus leave them than remain with them? And he said it in numerous ways and at various times in John 14, 15, and 16, but basically he says it this way. It's better for me to leave than to stay because only if I leave can I send the Holy Spirit? He will be with you and he will be in you. Now, it was great to have Jesus with them, but Jesus wasn't in them. And so what he was saying is the Holy Spirit will one day be in you. And that is a part of the new covenant blessing. And before he ascended to heaven, he said, I want you to remain in Jerusalem. I want you to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. That's the promised one, the Holy, the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit is not only the promised one, the Holy Spirit is the one that makes known to us the promises of God. The Bible from beginning to end is filled with unbelievable, unbelievably magnificent promises. It's in black and white. And as the men in the Bible wrote these books, and articulated these promises in words they were writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And we leave the Bible closed to our own detriment. We read the Bible quickly to our own demise. Because the Bible is filled with spectacular and wonderful promises from God to us. Not promises ripped out of their context, not promises that are twisted and contorted to mean something that that they didn't mean. Promises that within their, their very setting, their very context apply to where we are in life. 
Say, Pastor, what? What promises? How about the promise all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved? If you're here today and you're not a Christian, that's a promise for you. There aren't many promises for you in the Bible. That's a promise for you. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. What a beautiful promise. But brothers and sisters, what about this? Nothing will separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Demons, sickness, death, tribulation, trial, tumult, heartache. There's absolutely nothing in this world that can separate you from God's love. You and I sometimes don't feel like God loves us, but there's a promise in the Bible that says nothing can separate us from the love of God. You're in a situation now, maybe like the storm that, that Greg mentioned in the scripture reading in Mark chapter 4. It's tumultuous. It's horrific. And you think that your life is going to sink. You wonder, can anything good come out of this? Is there any hope in the midst of this? How about the promise God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him? and are called according to his purpose. You might not see or think or believe that any good could ever come out of this situation, but God promises you he will not waste our heartache. He will not let our disappointments go and go uh, down the drain like a sink filled up with water. He will use it. How about he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus? You feel like you're stumbling over yourself spiritually day in and day out? You're not making much progress? You wonder if there's anything good that can actually ever happen through you or in you? How about the verse, the promise? He who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. How about the beautiful promise, ask whatever you wish in my name and I will do it. Now we try to bracket it off and fence it off because of the health wealth gospel. Let's throw the health wealth gospel out the door. And let's allow the verse to say what we know it means, that if we will ask anything in his name, that it's in accordance with his character and for his glory and our good, he will do it. He wants to do so much more through our prayers than we can ever imagine. We don't believe it because we don't pray much, but he actually has given us an unbelievable promise to claim. And in our sane moments, when we're thinking rightly about things that really matter and we bow in prayer, we're reminded that whatever we ask in his name, he will do. That's a prayer worth praying. That's a promise worth remembering. Or maybe you feel like you're, you're about to be crushed under the weight of heartache and sin and disappointment. Maybe you're not even sure that you can, that you can go on. How about this passage for a promise? We're hard-pressed on every side but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, 
so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. That's not just for the Apostle Paul. That's for every believer that loves Jesus Christ and has been redeemed by his blood and sealed by the Holy Spirit. But there's more. The Spirit is not just a seal and, uh, and a promise. The, the Spirit is a pledge. The Spirit is a pledge. Look in verse 14 with me. Who is given to us as a pledge of our inheritance. To say that he's a pledge is to say that he's a down payment. Uh, if you own a home, you probably don't own your home. The bank probably owns your home. And you're making payments to the bank in order to, to one day own that home. And usually up front, there's some kind of transaction that takes place. There's some kind of down payment. It might be a few thousand dollars or it might be many thousands of dollars. But it doesn't cover the whole cost of the house. It's a, it's a guarantee that what you're giving now, there's more to follow. You're putting down a down payment. You're putting down money. There's more money that's going to, going to follow. The Holy Spirit is a guarantee. It's a pledge. It's a down payment of our inheritance. That full inheritance, that full view, that full magnificent picture that we've talked about in the book of Revelation will one day be visible. How do we know it's going to be visible? How do we know that it's going to be real? How do we know that we're going to experience? Because he's already given us the Holy Spirit. He's already given us a foretaste of heaven. He's already given us a pledge, a guarantee, a down payment in the Holy Spirit. Notice, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession. He says it again. He's, he's bought us. He's bought us. We belong to him. He's given us the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is intended to be earnest money. The Holy Spirit is more than earnest money, but it's, a, it's, it's earnest money in our minds in the, in the sense of this. If the Spirit of God is this glorious, how much more glorious when my, when my faith becomes sight? That's what he's saying here. To the praise of his glory. And so when we stand and sing, after we celebrate the Lord's Supper in just a few minutes, we'll sing loud, we'll sing strong, we'll, we'll sing uh, vibrantly, because it's to the praise of his glory that we're singing. We're singing that he would be glorified, that he would be honored because of what he's done in us. He's chosen us, he's redeemed us, he's sealed us. He has given us a book filled with promises just for us. And he has made it known that what he started, he will complete. The way that we know he'll complete it, he's given us his Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will never be taken away from us. We can't cast him out. We can't throw him out. He is there as a seal, an indicator, a brand that we belong to God. So as we conclude these first 14 verses and prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper, let me give you just a couple of final thoughts today. Three things to close with as we get ready to celebrate the Lord's Supper. First, you belong to God. He says it in a couple of different ways in this passage, but he makes it very clear in verse 14, the redemption of God's own possession. You belong to God. He could not love you any more than he loves you. It is not possible 
for God to love you any more than he already loves you. Secondly, you are indwelt by God's spirit. God didn't say, all right, I've saved you. Now do the best you can. Maneuver your way through this fallen world as best you're able. I've saved you, but now it's up to you. No, he has given us the Holy Spirit to live inside us. Then thirdly, he's given us a purpose in living. Say, Pastor, what could my purpose be as a clerk at Macy's? To live for God's glory. For the praise of the glory of his grace. Be a light in the midst of darkness. To be a gospel testimony. To be someone that works as if Christ himself were your supervisor. God's people live for God's glory. God's people are indwelt by God's spirit. God's people are God's possession. And that's something to celebrate as we take the Lord's Supper. In just a moment, I'm going to pray and our deacons are going to come forward. We're going to distribute the, the bread and uh, our vice chairman of our deacons, Scott Moyes, is going to assist me here in the, in the front. You may be a guest with us today and, and you're, you're wondering, should I, uh, what's the practice of the church? If, if you have trusted in Christ, you've been baptized, you have you are seeking to live for God. I mean, maybe it's two steps forward and one step back. That's about the best I can do on any given day. And you've fallen this morning. You've dusted yourself off. You, you said, Father, forgive me. I, I shouldn't have done this, said that, thought that. By all means, we, we'd encourage you to partake of the Lord's Supper with us today. You know, if you find your heart wandered from, has wandered from God, you're not close to God. And, and your Christianity is casual at best. I'd encourage you not to take the Lord's Supper. Nobody's going to be looking or uh, you, you should feel some embarrassment, honestly, about it. If that's where you're at, you should be embarrassed by that. You've been redeemed by the blood of God's own son. And if you're living a casual Christian life, shame on you for doing it. But you can take, you can take care of that right now. I'm going to pray. And in just a moment, as I'm praying for us, you can say, Father, my Christianity is casual. It's, it's anemic. It's it's embarrassing. Please forgive me and use the Lord's Supper to strengthen me. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we thank you that the Lord's Supper is intended to, to be a means of grace. It strengthens us spiritually and it reminds us of the fact that Jesus died for us and it reminds us that Jesus is coming again for us. Now work in and among us in these final minutes together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.